Okay, thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, Eric, and thank you for those kind words, Eric. As I was mentioning, we're about to go on a campaign to Mesa, Arizona, and there's an Indian reservation there where we support some missionaries. And they had asked us to prepare some lessons on apologetics, and that is what uh, led me to prepare this lesson. And generally, when we think of apologetics, we think of science, and we maybe think of archaeology. But I think it's important for us to think when we think about apologetics to also think about the inspiration and fallibility of scriptures. And so that is what I'm intending to show today or tonight in this lesson is that the Bible is the inspired word of God. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 20 and 21, it says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. See, the Bible is the Word of God. It is the complete, without compromise, perfectly unified, life-giving Word of God. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I don't want you to take anyone's word for it, because you can always find somebody that's going to tell you that this is all just fiction or mythology. I want you to know for yourself, if the Bible is true, as it claims to be, and it's the Word of God as it claims to be, then you should be able to pick it up and tell for yourself. You don't need uh, to be present way back when, when all those uh, miracles were happening, to, to witness those miracles. You don't need to have been present to, to witness all those signs that were performed to confirm that it was the Word of God. You just need to grab this book and read it and see for yourself. If this is truly God's Word, then you should be able to read it and if you're looking for it and you have an honest heart and an open mind, then you should notice some divine characteristics about it. For instance, you would notice that it's true, it's factual, it's accurate. The, the, the historical places mentioned are, are historically accurate. The scientific facts mentioned are scientifically uh, accurate and factual. You should also notice that it has information in it that only God would know. For example, how do we inherit eternal life? That's not something man would know. Only God would know that, the answer to that question. And you should notice that it's consistent. It's consistent across time, across authors, across cultures. It is unified in its purpose and it's in its message. You would notice that in any other written document made by man, that it would not be so unified and consistent. The Bible is written by man over a, a long period of time and inspired by God. So we should expect that it should still be consistent. It's written by men uh, using their own personalities and experiences, but they were moved by God to communi communicate precise truths. It was written by nearly 40 different men over a period of 1,500 years. It would be impossible for men from so many different backgrounds over such a long period of time to agree on anything. Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, they were disciples of one another, and they couldn't all agree on one philosophy. Yet, it is possible for God to bring all these writers together to unfold a unified, true, and consistent message of hope. And that's exactly what God did. There are there are many different ways that I can show you this from the Bible, but tonight we're just gonna focus on 
one theme that is reiterated in the entire Bible from beginning to end. And what we're going to see is how God used many different authors over a long period of time uh, to convey this one unique story of hope. And that is God's story of redemption. Redemption can be defined as buying something or bringing someone back or saving someone. God has done this to mankind and for mankind. And the Bible perfectly tells this story of redemption from beginning to end. Uh, for today's lesson, we're only going to study three different examples of how this story of redemption is revealed in different times and by different writers of Scripture. We could talk about uh, a lot more examples, but we're only going to look at three. We're going to notice that God's redemption can be seen first in the release from captivity in Exodus, and that was about 1,500 years before Christ. Second, in the time of the judges, particularly through the salvation of Ruth and Naomi, about 1,200 years before Christ. And then third, we're going to look at the promise of restoration of Israel as prophecy by uh, Hosea, and that was about 800 years before Christ. But first, let's notice God's plan of redemption in the release of God's people from Egyptian bondage. God took a man named Abram outside, and he said to him, Look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. So shall your descendants be. God also said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Abram would become known as Abraham later, and he would have a son in his ripe old age named Isaac. Isaac would have a son named Jacob, and Jacob would have 12 sons, one who was named Joseph. Joseph would be sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. But the Lord was with Joseph, and he rose to prominence to be over Pharaoh's house, his whole entire kingdom. Joseph would eventually be reunited with his family as they all immigrated down to Egypt. It, it was about 70 people, and they settled in the land of Goshen in Egypt. But after several generations, there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, and, and the people became uh, afraid of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they sold them into slavery. But the more the people of Israel were afflicted, the Bible says, the more they multiplied and were spread out. And it says, God heard the cry of his people and remembered the promise he made to Abraham. God then chose a man named Moses to be a prophet and to lead his people out of Egyptian bondage. God would use Moses as a ruler and a deliverer. Through Moses, God performed great wonders and signs through the ten plagues, even striking dead the firstborn of every Egyptian household. And although Pharaoh's heart was hardened by all this, he eventually let the people of Israel go, and they plundered the Egyptians even. God led them out into the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and with a mighty hand, God led them out of Egypt. When the Egyptians pursued the nation of Israel, God parted the Red Sea, and the whole people walked across on dry land. But God made the sea swallow up the Egyptians who were following them in pursuit. 
This is an example of God redeeming his people with a strong hand. And the descendants of Abraham, as numerous as the stars, they would make their way to Mount Sinai where they would receive God's law for them and make a covenant in blood with the God who redeemed them by releasing them from captivity. Now, this redemption story that I just told was all part of a promise God fulfilled over the course of 400 years. It wasn't just a nice story. It wasn't just part of a nation's heritage and, and pride in their founding, similar to what we Americans might have about the uh, American Revolution or our nation's independence. We tend to memorialize such things. This was not just a m memorial. This redemption of Egypt, this redemption of Israel from Egyptian bondage was far reaching in its implications and its spiritual application. It, it applies for the whole world at, at all times. We learn things about God and about the kind of relationship he wants to have with us as his people. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses would challenge the people to remember. Remember what God did for them by redeeming them from slavery. He redeems his people, and, and he wants, to, wants his people to remember their release from captivity because he wants them to be holy, to be set apart, and to keep his commandments so that they, they might live a blessed life. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8 and following says, <clears throat> But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to the thousandth generation, who, to those who love him and keep his commandments. Therefore you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgment, which I'm commanding you to do today. Psalm chap, uh, chapter 102 and verses 19 and following say, For he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death, that men tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the peoples are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. God is telling us a spiritual message that he wants to free us from spiritual captivity and darkness so that we would come to him. Now, all of that is written by Moses 1,500 years before Christ, and the message was reiterated numerous times by God's prophets throughout the centuries. But we see its ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament through Christ. Through Jesus, God has redeemed us. He has released us from slavery. 1,500 years after Moses, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, speaking about how Christians should consider themselves free from sin, it says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. So in Christ, we are redeemed. We are released from slavery to a, from a dark life of sin. 
And then in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now listen to this. These words penned 1,500 years removed from the Exodus are not just an accidental reference. They are the inspired words of God communicating one message throughout history. God redeems and God releases. The second way we can notice God's story of redemption unfold in the history of the Bible is through the redemption of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth and Naomi, they lived during the time of the judges of Israel. This is some 300 years after the exodus uh, from Egypt, but uh, before Israel had an earthly king. Naomi was the mother-in-law of Ruth. And the story begins when Naomi's family, her husband and her two sons, leave their country of Israel because of a famine, and they settle in the country of Moab. While there, uh, Naomi's husband dies. And then her two sons marry two Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. Well, after marrying these two women, Naomi's sons also died. And after 10 years in a foreign land, Naomi has no children, no inheritance, and no one to take care of her. There is another problem. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, he was a, an important man in Israel. He was from an important family. And he and Naomi now had no descendants to carry on the name. That is where Ruth comes in. She could have stayed in her, in her home country of Moab. She, she could have remarried one of her own people, whoever she wanted. Uh, it will go on later to say in the book of Ruth that she could have married young men, either rich or poor. But instead, she chose to stay with Naomi and follow her home to Israel. And this is what Ruth said. She said, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Now, after they return to Israel, Ruth needs to work. She needs to provide for these two women. So she decides to go glean in the fields. Now, notice this. She happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Remember, that's uh, the one I said that um, he, he had an important lineage to carry on. And it's a good thing that she just happened to come to this particular field. Anyway, the, the, this man is kin to Elimelech, Boaz is. And Elimelech, the deceased husband of Naomi, he has the right under Jewish law to marry Ruth. Boaz has the right to marry Ruth under Jewish law in order to provide for her and to have children and, and to carry on the family name. This law, this Jewish law, is called the, the law of the kinsman redeemer. So what does Ruth do? She modestly courts Boaz for this purpose so that he can redeem her. And Boaz agrees on the condition that no other closer relative uh, exercises his right to, to Elimelech's family and inheritance. The one closer relative that there is that they do find, he chooses not to exercise his right of redemption. So Boaz agrees to redeem Ruth and by extension, uh, Naomi. And thereby he provides for them. He raises up heirs who will provide for them. 
and, and carry on the family lineage. So why is this so important? What is all of this about a family lineage? Well, in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 12, it says that the elders who witnessed Boaz's redemption of Ruth and Naomi, this is what they say. They say, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this woman. Who is this Perez? Who is Tamar and Judah? Is this just a, a random detail? They are referring back to a promise that was made over 500 years prior to Jacob's son, Judah. You remember Jacob, Israel? He had 12 sons. One was Joseph that we mentioned that went down to Egypt. Another was Judah. And the promise was, was made to Judah in Genesis 49 that his descendants would rule over the nation of Israel. And how about Tamar and Perez? What, what is their story? Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law in the first recorded example of the kinsman-redeemer relationship that we find in the Bible. When Judah's sons died, Judah had, uh, uh, by the deception of, of Tamar, had redeemed Tamar when all, of, when all of his sons had died. So Judah and Tamar, uh, through that relationship, had twins. The firstborn who would inherit the birthrights was Perez. Perez was the great, 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 great grandfather of Elimelech and Boaz. And now Boaz and Ruth were going to carry on the great lineage and promise for a future king. Ruth and Naomi were now redeemed. They were bought back into a saving relationship. Uh, without this redemption, they would have lived their lives as, as widows. And during those days, it was a tough life uh, to live as, as a widow. This truly was salvation for them and now they had a hope of being cared for and of a future legacy uh, Ruth chapter 4 and verse 13 this is what it says so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son then the women said to Naomi blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born, etc., 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 and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. This David is the same David that would become the king of Israel, the greatest king over the nation of Israel. You see, this isn't just a good story. Its purpose is isn't just to tell the story of the descendants of a great earthly king. It, it does that, and that's an important and good. It is a story with great morals. Ruth was loyal. Uh, she demonstrated upstanding uh, character and modesty. Uh, however, this isn't just a good, a good story with good morals. You would expect that from lit literature that was written by man, just a randomly placed arrangement of stories reflecting good morals and a national heritage. But we should expect more from a book with divine characteristics, a book with 
divine characteristics, we're going to expect a smaller story, but it's going to fit into the bigger picture of God's story for mankind. And the book of Ruth does that. It helps us to see how God wants to have a saving and redeeming relationship with his people. Redemption isn't just about releasing people, as we mentioned with the Exodus. It's about also having a saving relationship with people, with his people. Boaz redeemed Ruth and thereby adopted a relationship that was ended up being salvation for Ruth and Naomi. And you can see God's hand at play directing this whole situation. From the famine to Ruth just happening across the right field to Ruth wanting to do the right thing for God and, and his law. Uh, she could have married anyone, uh, remember. And God's providence is clearly at work in this story. God wants a redeeming relationship with his people. Psalm 68 and verses 4 through 6 say, Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before him, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows, his God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. You see, God wants a redeeming relationship where he protects his people. This message is further played out in the New Testament in the relationship Jesus wants to have with us. Listen to this. The Jewish laws about kinsmen and redeemers weren't just good moral laws, but they also parallel the kind of saving relationship that God wants to have with us through Jesus. God wants to adopt us as children and with Jesus as our brother. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God predestined us to as adoption for sons through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having be, been predestined according to his purpose. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salva salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. God has redeemed us as his children through Jesus Christ, and that, and that means we can have a saving relationship with him. Hebrews chapter 2 says that, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partake of the same thing that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who fear death, who were subject to slavery all their lives. So in other words, Christians are redeemed as children of God. That was predestined since the beginning of the world, Ephesians 1 tells us. So it's only natural uh, scripture would come back to this idea time and time and time again throughout history. It was is preordained by God. And not only are Christians redeemed as children of God, since Jesus was flesh and blood like we are, 
he is called our brother, an adopted brother, if you will. And he has done on our behalf what we couldn't do on our own. He has redeemed us from slavery to sin and death and, and brought us into a, a relationship with the Father. What a beautiful uh, truth. Uh, man couldn't even uh, make this up. Uh, the most gifted novelist ever known to mankind could not even dream of spinning a yard, a yarn so elaborate. But it's simple and powerful. God's plan of redemption throughout Bible history is not something that man can make up and, and concoct on their own. It has to be uh, from God. And oh, by the way, how about that famous lineage of Ruth and Boaz we were talking about? That great lineage that was preserved through uh, Ruth's redemption is a lineage that led to Jesus, the Messiah. Ruth and Boaz were great ancestors of Jesus Christ, the prophesied anointing king in the lineage of David. Wow. This book has divine characteristics, so it must be the word of God. The next example that uh, we're going to talk about tonight in scripture that demonstrate that the Bible indeed has div divine characteristics and, and tells the story of redemption throughout Bible history is God's redemption as seen in Gomer's hope of restoration as prophesied by Hosea. Hosea was a, was a prophet in the, in the northern ten tribes of, of Israel uh, during what is known as the divided kingdom period. This is 700 years after Moses and the Exodus. This is 400 years after Ruth and Boaz, and it's still some 800 years before Christ. So during this time, the kingdom of Israel had separated from the kingdom of, of Judah, and they had been separated from God for quite some time now in serving idols. The nation was actually living in a time of great prosperity and expansion materially, but it was in a time of greater moral decline. They were on the brink of of being conquered by the Assyrian Empire, and people had no interest in the redeeming relationship with God. This prophet Hosea, he was told by God to marry an unfaithful woman named Gomer and, and to have children with her. Now, this was not an allegory. Uh, this is just an object lesson. God said the reason he wanted Hosea to do this is because the nation itself the people of Israel themselves commit unfaithfulness against God. Hosea is then told to make a prophecy against Israel where the country is described like an unfaithful uh, woman who sought after her other husbands. And, and she uh, thought that these other husbands could provide for her better than her, God, her uh, husband, God, could provide for her. So as a result, God is putting her away. This is supposed to be a lesson for Israel since Israel is chasing after all these other gods and, and chasing after material prosperity. Instead of remaining faithful to God, God is going to put them away. But when in Hosea chapter 2, when she realizes how much better life was married to God and in, in his house, there's security and, pro, and a provision in that house. She's going to want to come back to him. She's going to want to come back to God. Hosea is then told in chapter 3 to go back to his adulterous wife, to buy her back. 
and this is he likely has to buy her back because she's entered into some prostitution or slavery. But he's going to actually pay a price to buy her back. And Hosea, Hosea redeems her back, restores her to a position as his bride with hope for full restoration back into his household. In Hosea chapter 3, we're told that all of this represents Israel, who will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, or without ephod, or without household idols. This is referring to the point in history where Israel is going to be taken into Assyrian, uh, into bondage through Assyrian conquest. They had forgotten about God. <clears throat> they had committed spiritual adultery by going after idols, false gods, and the false promises of worldly prosperity. So God gave them over to their adultery. However, Hosea 3 continues. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So what is this? They will seek David, their king. What could this be referring to? This is certainly after the time of David. David had already been deceased for nearly 150 years. The kingdom had been divided from David's kingly lineage. There are still kings of David's line in Judah, uh, but the kingdom had been divided from that for over 100 years. What could this be referring to? Well, certainly the captives of Israel, they were would eventually... Uh, the book of Ezra tells us about this, they would eventually be led back to Israel under the leadership of Zerubbabel. He was a princely descendant of David. But I think they must be looking for some other redemption besides just a, re a restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Because Hosea verse, chapter 13, verse 14 says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. In other words, in Israel's adultery and subsequent judgment, they are missing out on God's promise of life. He offers them a promise of life if they have fellowship with him. Hosea 14 will go on to say, Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. The people of Israel, despite their initial rejection of God and their subsequent judgment by uh, Syrian captivity, they will want to re return to the Lord and his kingship spiritually, not just a physical kingdom. And if they do that, God's promise to redeem them spiritually, restore them to a new life of hope. You see, the story of Hosea and Gomer is not just random. It's probably not even a, a good story as far as human standards for stories go. Everyone would be rooting for Gomer uh, the adulterous wife, or rooting against her, I should say, uh, uh, until we realize the fact that we ourselves are Gomer. We are the ones who have turned from God and committed adultery against God whenever we follow after our own passions and desires, that is. Uh, 
So this is not just a good random story. We need God and his redemption. The promise of God's redemption, the buying us back from adultery, that is the promise of restoration, the promise of, of a new life being dedicated to God. And this was told, this story, same story was told by all the prophets. They would pronounce judgment on Israel and then they would promise a time of restoration. So how does this story of restoration play out as we approach the time of Christ? Well, first off, Israel, even after returning from captivity, never stopped looking for that king in the line of David who would redeem Israel, as promised in Hosea and all the other prophets. Uh, for example, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, when he prophesied about Jesus in Luke chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. The prophetess Anna in Luke chapter 2, when she saw Jesus, she wanted to go about speaking about him to everyone she came across who was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And in fact, after his death, some of his disciples, they became discouraged. And they were saying uh, to Jesus, they didn't realize it was Jesus at the time, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. What they didn't realize was that they were talking to the resurrected King Jesus himself, the Redeemer of Israel, who would restore the nation to a kingdom, a people who are bought back by his blood to live a new life of hope. Was the nation of Israel ever restored back to her former position of prosperity and glory as the people of God? You bet she was. In Revelation chapter 5, John sees a vision of heaven. He says in verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That book and seals that is being referred to in the Revelation is judgment on the Roman Empire, that great persecutor of the Christians, the people of God. And the one who was slain, that was our Redeemer, our King of our new spiritual kingdom that would last forever. Now we live in a time where uh, God's story of redemption is nearly complete. We live in a spiritual kingdom with Christ, our Redeemer, as head. But we still live physically on this earth. How can that be? We look forward to a time when God's redemption story will be completely fulfilled. And that's when the bride, the church, the people of God is presented to the Lamb, our Redeemer. Revelation chapter 21 says, beginning in verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, 
and I will be his God, and he will be my son. <clears throat> and as we close, and Eric leads us in prayer, I want us to see that this proves that the Bible is inspired. It truly is the perfect word of God, a complete story of redemption for the people of God who fell away from the first man who was Adam, even until now we still fall all away. Mankind still falls away from God, and we still need a Redeemer. God, since the foundation of the world, predetermined that Jesus would redeem mankind, not with perishable things like silver and gold, First Peter 1 would say, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And God has communicated these truths to us over and over again as Bible history unfolds. We have seen this truth with only three stories tonight, the story of the Exodus, the story of Ruth, and the story of Hosea and Israel's restoration. We could look at many, many more, uh, but we don't have time tonight. You need to see for yourself. Pick up your Bible and read it and observe for yourself that this book possesses divine characteristics impossible to observe in any other book written by man. The more you read and study the Bible, I promise the more you will treasure it as the perfect, life-saving, life-giving, inspired Word of God. Thank you.